Good morning. Great to be here. If we haven't met yet, my name's Tony Anderson. I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here and also uh, the privilege of being on staff here as the executive pastor and the pastor of counseling. Uh, Doug has some time away this week, and so I get to um, pick up where we are in this journey of a disciple, a disciple who makes disciples. And we're in the process of maturing as believers, and today we're going to talk about confession. The first thing that comes to mind when I see this is, thank you, Doug, for giving me this topic while you're gone. But we can, I think when we think of confession, it seems like a, that's one of those things, I know I should, but that seems hard. And I hope by the end of the day, we're going to see from Scripture just the many blessings that come from confessing sins. Now, first of all, I want to, what we're talking about, what we have in mind uh, for most of today is not uh, the confession that leads to salvation. That's what's spoken of in the book of Romans. We see in Romans chapter 10 that says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. If you remember our journey, we all start in the coffin, spiritually dead. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, we come to recognize, I am a sinner. I have violated God's word. There's nothing I can do to restore that relationship. But I also believe Jesus, the Son of God, came and lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death that I deserved. God raised him to show that he accepted that penalty as payment for my sins. And when I believe that and make him the Lord, the master, the boss of my life, I am raised again to new life. I am born again. I am now a believer. And so if that is your situation, if you have not yet placed faith in Christ, one of the things we'd love to talk to you about at guest services is how you can come to know the Lord as your Savior. But today, like I said, we're talking about... Salvation, I mean, I'm sorry, confession as a believer. What I just talked about was when you came to know the Lord, as the song sang, the gavel came down and you were declared not guilty. That means your legal relationship with, the God, with God was confirmed as not guilty. That is a one-time act that never changes. But there's another great blessing at that point as well. We are now adopted into a family God is our father, Abba, daddy, and that is the relationship that we're really going to have in mind today as we talk about confessing our sins. We are forgiven, justified, but we're also adopted. We are sons and daughters of God. So we're talking about confessing sins by believers. So the question comes up, should we? Do we have to? I mean, if I've been forgiven judicially, I've been declared not guilty for all my sins, past, present, and future, what is the purpose of confessing sin? So our passage, uh, as Tracy mentioned, is 1 John. We're going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 3. If you follow along your scriptures, if you don't have it, it'll be up here as we read. John writes, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, he basically talks about that he walked with Jesus. He heard him. He touched him listen to him. He was the living word of God. And he says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. So we see clearly in the passage, we're gonna get to confession. We see there in verse nine, but John does something um, very helpful to us. He basically writes a short letter and in the beginning he says, I wanna tell you the purpose of writing this letter. I'm gonna tell you why so that you'll pay attention to what I'm saying. This was something Bill Winton, 20 years ago when I, when I was new here, I taught in middle school and Bill said, one of the things you wanna do with middle school is tell them why they need to listen to you. Set it up so that they will engage. And I think of it this way. If I was here and I gave this message and at the very end I ended with, and that's how you can earn a million dollars. I think all of a sudden you would say, wait a minute, I should have been paying closer attention, right? So we're gonna see that John tells us why, he's gonna give us three reasons why what he writes is very important, including what he writes about confession. He says in 1 John 1, 3, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He says what we want, we want you to have fellowship with us, koinonia, an intimate fellowship relationship closer than many of our own blood, blood relatives. We are now spiritually in the same family. And so if we now have fellowship and we becomes our, our fellowship is also with the Father and the Son. He says, what, what I'm about to tell you is what lead to that greater sense of koinonia, that great fellowship with our, with our Heavenly Father and with our spiritual family. So one of the reasons we should mature is we will have greater fellowship with other believers and with God. And I think you experience that. You, you probably know that there's a certain fellowship as you come to know God more and you have this great sense of relationship with him and some here in the body, you have just that sense of oneness with them that maybe you don't experience with your own biological families who aren't believers. You go, I have a closer sense of fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ than I do with some of my family. Another reason, if you look at verse four, it says, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete or being made complete. So again, our is now us. John says, we're writing to you so we can have fellowship and then our joy may be made complete. Now, obviously until we're in heaven, that's when our joy is totally complete, but we have this sense of growing joy. Now, you've probably heard joy before and you think, okay, as a Christian, that's something I have to do some mental gymnastics for and just say it's joyful. James 1, right? Consider it all joy when you face many trials. But joy is something that we can experience despite our circumstances. Now, I'm gonna have something up here, what joy is. So first of all, greater joy, that's your blank. And I ran out of room on the message memo and 
Kelly, our graphic designer back there, says you can't have any more room on your message memo. So this is just bonus, okay? So what is this joy we're talking about? Joy is a supernatural delight. It is something that is a work of the Spirit. It is a fruit of the Spirit, joy. So it's a supernatural delight in the person of God. And maybe you've experienced that. As you confess sin or if you study the Scriptures and you start learning more about God, His attributes, you go, that is, He is amazing. I want to know more. So you start having this supernatural delight in the person of God, but also you have a supernatural delight in the people of God. Where it's like, I want to be around my brothers and sisters. Can I tell you, I love Sundays. I love being here. I love being with these people. When I'm out in the courtyard and I see people, I can't, maybe because I'm looking for visitors, you know, we're having company over, so I can't always engage with you as much as I want, but I love seeing you guys love one another. And so John's saying, what I'm about to tell you will have you have a greater joy with one another. And that, and if you have a joy in one another, you start caring for one another. And then you have a supernatural delight in the purpose of God. It's like, God, you are so amazing. My family is so amazing. We see your mission and we wanna get excited about it. It doesn't matter if I wake up with back pain, if I have a chronic illness, if I've lost someone, I still see you at work. I see how you are using these people to reach thousands in Punjab, Japan. And it's like, I am excited about that. And that is despite my circumstances. But it says there's one way you can ensure that that grows even more, that it can be made more complete. And we're gonna see that that is confession. Now, John does one more thing. He goes to the end of the book and reminds us one other reason why he wrote this. And that is so that we can have greater assurance of salvation. A greater assurance of our salvation. At the end of, the, end of his letter, chapter five, verse 13, he says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I think John just knew in life when things are hard, when we stumble, when we do realize, ah, I can't believe I sinned that way again, we can start to think, am I even saved? I mean, we've probably all had that. He says, what I'm writing in this letter is a way for you to know to have assurance of that salvation. So there's a three great reasons right there. Okay, we're gonna talk about confession and rather than thinking about, oh, I gotta go tell somebody, it's like, no, this is a way I can have a greater koinonia with God and I can have joy in his person, his people and his purposes. And you know, if this is a habit of mine of confessing, I can have assurance of salvation. So he then says, this is the path for that. He starts in verse uh, five, he says, this message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Then verse seven, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So if you notice in the NASB, the translators capitalize the word light to show they are referring to God, meaning God is light because he's pure, he's brilliant. He has a true spiritual purity. And if we walk in the light, his truth, we become conformed to his standard. If I'm walking in the light, just like walking in the spirit, I become more and more like Christ. And as a result, I'm cleansed and I have fellowship with him. So think of it this way. As I study God's word, 
I receive more light. The Spirit comes in, illuminates my heart to give me understanding of the Scripture, and then my mind explodes more. Wow, God. So the question to you is, are you seeking more light? Are you in the Scriptures for the purpose of, Lord, show me who you are? And as we, walk in the, as we know more, we walk in the light, we try to walk in conformity with him. What happens if we, well, one other thought. Maybe this has been your journey. You've come to know the Lord and you read the scriptures and you get more light and you realize as I study more, I actually have more freedom. Maybe you came from a background where it's like, oh, if you believe in God or believe in Jesus, you can't do this. You can't play cards, you can't dance, whatever. You go, wait a minute. I have freedom to do this. Flip side is, as you're reading and it brings conviction, you go, yeah, now there are certain things I shouldn't be doing, thinking, saying. So as we're in the scripture more, we find more freedom and conviction in our heart. So what happens if we don't walk in the light? Verse six, sandwiched again. Oh, there's your blank. Walk in the light. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, right? If you're not walking in obedience, God is light, so you can't walk with him and walk in the darkness. And it says here, you do not practice the truth. We can know it, but truth isn't realized until we practice it. And so if we're walking in disobedience, we're not walking in the light, we are walking in disobedience. And it says you lie about having close fellowship with God. I have close fellowship with God. I'm walking in darkness. You're lying, plain and simple. You lie about that. So then John gives us the solution in verse nine. He says, the solution is confess your sin. But once again, he sandwiches nine verses eight and 10. And let's look at what he's talking about in eight and 10 before we unpack verse nine. He says in verse eight, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. There were some believers, I mean, there were some uh, people at the time who believed either that they were not sinful or that somehow through their religious experience, their, their sin was gone. They no longer were sinful. And John is just saying that is not true because even though we are born again and our hearts are made new and we now are disposed toward pleasing God, we, our, our flesh has still been habituated towards sin and there will be sin that we will be trying to put off until we're perfected. So to say you have no sin, he says you're deceiving yourself and the truth of God is not in you. Then we have others in verse 10 who says that we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. This speaks to the people who habitually say, might say, I know I'm a sinner, but. And then anytime you try to probe, there's a justification or a rationalization or something as to why what they said or did or thought wasn't sinful. I know I'm a sinner, but but there's never any actual confession of a particular sin. And because God said we will sin in this life until we're perfected, we're making him a liar. So we have to be mindful of that. And so the question for you is, can you be, is that something that could be 
um, something you struggle with. Can you remember the last time you confessed a specific sin to the Lord or to someone else? Now think about this. Can you see why if you're not confessing, that can impact what we just talked about at the very top of your message memo? Remember, if we are believers, we are forgiven. So our salvation is not in doubt. But we are now part of a family. And I want you to think back to when you were a child and you had disobeyed your parents, but you hadn't told them yet. And you didn't think they knew, although they knew a lot more probably <laughs> than we realized. But there's that sense of, I, don't, I want to avoid eye contact. Can you imagine going to a big feast where our Heavenly Father is there and the big table and our great big brother Jesus is there and it's like, but there's unconfessed sin. It's like, I don't want to sit close to him. I want to sit down here at this end of the table. I'm not experiencing that fellowship because I'm trying to hide something from him as if we could. Now think about it this way. If I'm also not experiencing that fellowship, how's that going to impact my joy, right? If I'm concerned about denying my sin, rationalizing my sin, how am I going to have a supernatural delight in God? I haven't, I'm not experiencing his mercy and his grace, so that doesn't seem like a, a factor to me. My joy with you guys is impacted because it's like, I gotta make sure they don't know what's going on or the purposes of God. How can I go about really being excited about God because inwardly I feel like this hypocrite. I'm encouraging this, but living this way. So when we don't confess that fellowship, is hindered, our joy is hindered, and we start experiencing unrest in our soul. We're going to look at some uh, Psalm 38 here for a minute, and this was written by David. Most scholars believe that between the time of David's sin with Bathsheba, adultery, some may even argue that there was some uh, sexual abuse there because of his power, the killing, the having his, her husband killed, and the time that Nathan confronted him could have been around 15 months. And this is, during that time, this is how David described himself. He said he was experiencing eternal pain, spiritual pressure, physical illness, heavy burdens, worsening circumstances, daily sadness, weakness, loss of caring, inward agitation, heart palpitations, sad eyes, loneliness, threats, insecurity, maybe even paranoia, sorrow, and anxiety. So failure to confess is hard on our inner man and also our outer man. It's hard to be having koinonia and joy. And if this becomes our habit, we even start lacking that assurance of our own salvation. So that is why it is so important. And I think sometimes what we have to recognize, some of the sins that are hardest to confess are sins that we commit in response to sins against us. It's like their sin was so much worse that I was justified. Or if someone speaks into our life, how dare you admonish me about my sin when what they did to me? And I heard this just this this past week. Someone said, we have to recognize our sin is the most dangerous sin. It may not be the most painful. I mean, we may have, some of you may have been sinned against greatly, but our sin is the most dangerous to our soul because it is our 
sin that robs us of the fellowship and joy. And it's our sin that Jesus died for. It's our personal responsibility for his death. So what does John say about confession? We've, we're finally there. Does that seem like the world's longest introduction? We're now talking about confession. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a great verse. I use it in counseling, but this is where I think it's very important that we know the verse word perfect. Because what I'll do in order to encourage someone sometimes is I'll say, you know what? Thank you for telling me about your sin. But you know, if you confess to God, he's faithful to forgive you. And I leave out a word. I frequently would leave out, he is righteous. Some of your translations say just to forgive. And both of those words are important. I mean, we, Isaac shared a verse from the Proverbs about if we uh, confess our sins, we'll find compassion. So he's, a, he's faithful, he tells the truth, he will forgive. But why is it important that God is righteous? Why does John mention that character trait of God? And why, if God is righteous, when you think about righteous, just, why is he almost, why is he obligated to forgive us because of his righteousness? It seems opposite. It's like, I've, I've sinned. And here's the answer. Because Jesus has already paid the debt. All right? Think of it this way. I'm looking over here at two friends. I don't know if they know each other, but Wayne and Chris are here. Let's say Wayne owes me $5. And Chris says, you know what? Here's $5. I'm covering Wayne's debt. Next time I see Wayne, I say, Wayne, you still owe me $5. Is that fair? I've been paid. So the reality is God is righteous because Jesus has already paid the debt. That's why he forgives us. He forgives us because we are forgiven. And that's important. It's a restoration of that parental family relationship. It's not that our debt is having to be paid or confessed again. Remember, the gavel has already come down. But he is righteous to, to forgive us and to restore that relationship, not because he's moved away from us, but because we have not been walking with him. And this can be very, I think this can be very helpful because I know probably some of you, it's like, I have gone to the Lord so many times for this sin and confessed and gone back. He just can't forgive me anymore. Well, you're forgiven already. Or it's like, you know, I know you're forgiven, but my, somehow my sin is worse. So I want us to think of it this way. Remember, he was a judge that declared you not guilty. But in your thinking, when you think that way, it's like, God, I know, I know your ruling was not guilty, but in this case, I'm gonna serve in the role of Supreme Court and overrule your decision. In some sense, it's laughable because who are we? But in the other sense, that's very, very dangerous. We are putting our place above God in the role of judge. But I want that to encourage you. It's like, if you're someone who has struggled with a sin repeatedly or think yours is too great, if you have faith in Christ, that debt has been paid. You are forgiven. Don't let that keep you from pursuing reconciliation, confession, repentance with our Father. So what does confession look like? First, if, when we confess, it means you agree with everything God says about your sin. 
It's more than just acknowledging a fact. I said that, I did that. It means I agree, God, with your view of my thought, my word, my actions, that it was sinful. I agree that it violated your scriptures. It also means I accept responsibility for your sin. From the very beginning, what was Adam's first words? The woman you gave me. But when we confess, it's like, you know what? Lord, I agree it's sinful and I, I, I did it. I own it. And then you come with a heart of repentance. So I think this is important. When we come to confess, we've sinned, we've violated God's law, but we turn, we come, we acknowledge it, we own it, and we say, Lord, at this present moment, I have a heart of repentance. It is my current desire with the power of the Spirit to now walk in obedience. That is repentance. Jesus instructs us in Matthew 3, 8, therefore bear fruit, keeping with repentance. So we repent, and then if that heart stays pure and committed to that, we continue to live in a way that is consistent with our repentance. But there is a difference, and this can be very helpful. I counseled a man, it's probably a young man about seven years ago, and he came seeking help for the sin of gluttony. And because of the sin of gluttony, he wore it. And in his mind, when he got here and he, 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 he acknowledged it was sinful, he wasn't a good steward of his body, he owned it. But in his mind, until he worked the weight off, he was not repentant. He wasn't experiencing the cleansing and forgiveness. And I told him, no, this is repentance here. Sometimes there are consequences for our sin that we still have to work through, and there may be consequences of sin, but the repentance is there. And I think that's very important. It means right now, I, is my heart's desire to live in obedience to your word, and then I try to walk in obedience in the power of the Spirit. If I stumble, what do I do? I confess it, again, seek forgiveness, and his strength, keep walking, trying to bear fruit. Maybe I have to put in new protections, more accountability, but I'm still desiring to bear fruit of repentance. And God is so good because he tells us what true repentance looks like. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and this is what he says. Evidently, he has brought them to repentance, and he writes them, and he says... I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces debt. First few times I read that, I really wrestled with it until I understood, I was looking at it backwards. When we repent without regret, we don't regret leaving our sin, right? Confession in early 20s or whatever, trying to grow in my faith. I recognize I'm a Christian now. Certain things I did, I can't do anymore. But it was fun while it lasted. That wasn't repentance without regret. Repentance without regret is no pursuit of God and his righteousness. I don't regret leaving that sin. I don't want to try to hold on to it. I repent without regret. 
For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow is producing you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything you have demonstrated yourself to be innocent in this matter. So you could break down, we could do a sermon series on each one of those descriptive words of true repentance, but here's some questions. Just run through your mind on some of the things you've struggled with. Do you have an earnestness to fight the battle of temptation that doesn't go away as your circumstances return to normal? Right? Maybe there's conflict in your home. Maybe there's been a problem of pornography. Uh, you've confessed it to your spouse. First time or the last time you confessed, there was, there was anger, maybe sinful anger, righteous anger. And you go, no, I'll do anything to make it right. And then after a week or two, when she's calmed down, it's like, yeah, I'm not as diligent anymore. It doesn't seem as important to really put safeguards in place because bygones are bygones now. You're willing to share your sin or your struggle to be accountable to one or two Christian brothers or sisters who will seek to hold you accountable for your behavior. Are you willing to confess because you're not that worried about your own reputation? And I would argue it should be someone with, in your mind, someone with greater spiritual maturity and maybe even spiritual authority, because it's one thing to have sort of mutual confession. You struggle with this? Me too. So let's just confess it to each other all the time, but not really try to grow and change. You hate your sin because God hates it. It's not so much because there's fallout in here, although that is real. I hate my sin because God hates it. You're willing to do anything that's not sinful to restore relationships that have been harmed by it. You know what? Whatever it takes, as long as it's not sinful, I'm willing to do to restore the relationship harmed by the sin. You need passwords? You got them. Do I need to get rid of a smartphone and have a flip phone? A dumb phone, I guess? I'm willing to do that. All right? Why do you want to keep checking my phone? Nope. I realize I, haven't, I need to restore trust. So weeks, months, whatever, I understand. I'm willing to do this to restore trust. You're willing to accept the consequences of your sin. Sometimes confessing sin can have repercussions on the job. If it's something you've done with work resources or something, it's like, I need to confess this, but I could lose my job. Godly sorrow is not worried about the consequences. So... We need to really, when we confess and, re, and repent of that sorrow, we are forgiven. We are made cleansed and made clean. So maybe you go back up to your top of your message, maybe go, confession of sins means greater fellowship, greater joy, greater assurance, cleansing and forgiveness with the Father. Yes, there may be consequences, but I have that restored relationship and think about it, when you when you see your sin that you've been hiding so long, because to you it must have been a big deal if you've been slow to confess. Now it's like, I have even greater fellowship with God, greater joy in the person of God, because I have now had his grace and mercy poured out on me even more. And I want to tell other people about that. Sometimes we want to, oh, I want to be forgiven, but I don't still don't want to share how God's been merciful in my life. I want to, if, when we're truly repentant and we receive his mercy, we want to share that with others.
But as Martin Luther says, all of life is repentance, right? So here's, here's the reality. As we know the scriptures, should our, our quantity of sin should go down, but the number of times we repent should be going up. We're putting off sin, but the scripture just keeps revealing our heart. And so we should be quick to ask forgive. Oh, Lord, please forgive me of that thought. Please forgive me of that unkind word. That should be going up all of life. All of life is repentance. And as we grow, I'm going to challenge us all to grow in what David Pallison calls intelligent repentance. What do I mean by that? Let me show you. So we're going to grow in intelligent repentance. Here's a stripped down version of what we call the Y chart in our counseling discipleship training. Some of you have seen it. And there's just a recognition that every day we probably have hundreds of times we come to a point of decision to either please ourselves or to please God. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says we should make it our aim to be pleasing to him. And it's frequently just easier to please ourselves, granting forgiveness, being patient. But the Bible tells us that if we do that consistency, life is hard. Galatians tells us we're going to reap what we sow. But on the flip side is we have to recognize many times pleasing God is hard. But if that becomes our character, our lifestyle, it is easier than if we live over here. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Still a yoke, still a burden, but if we walk with him, life is easier than if we seek to please ourselves. So let's say, uh, just, I'll just use a husband example. You recognize one morning that you were sarcastic and cutting to your wife. And you go, that was unkind. I need to ask forgiveness. And then later that afternoon, you're coaching the kids, your kids' youth sport baseball team, and they are not playing well, including your own son. And so you get sinfully angry and at them for not a sin, but just not performing well. And, then, and you have to, I need to confess that. The next day at work, a coworker seems to be getting more acknowledgments than you and so when he's given a new assignment that you could help him with, it's like, I'm not helping him. He's going to have to figure it out on his own. You go, oh, bitterness. I need to confess that. And so there are three acts that show where there's this anger, bitterness, whatever. And so you keep confessing them. But what does intelligent repentance call us to do? And so to help this sort of uh, under, help you understand this, each of you right now, if you're married, I want you to think of a time that your spouse made you angry. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I was, but my wife said, don't do that to them. <laughs> okay, I won't. So think of it. You got one? You got an Oh, you know. Frequently it involves Disney World, I think. You know, <sighs> everyone trying to get ready. All right, if you're not married, think of a time your parents made you angry. Got one? Okay. Now, what's this? This is not a Doug trick question. What is it? Ketchup. If I open it, I put it in my right hand, and I squeeze it, five pounds of pressure, what's going to happen? What's going to come out? Okay. This. Open it up. Squeeze it. What's going to come out? I want ketchup to come out of it. Why isn't ketchup going to come out of this? mustard's inside it. 
So, what Jesus tells us in Mark is our thinking is what drives our decision. He says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. It comes from within. So when you think of those times when you said, well, this is the time my spouse made me angry or my parents made me angry, what the scripture says is they squeezed you, but your response, what came out was already in your heart. So for the guy who says, I was cutting with my wife, I was angry at my kids, I was bitter toward my coworker, intelligent repentance says, I'm not just going to confess those. I'm going to do the hard heart work and say, Lord, what are the idols of my heart that keep fueling this? Is it a desire for respect? Is it a desire for recognition? Is it a desire for ease of life? Because if we just confess these, they're just going to keep popping up. So as we grow in maturity, it's like, Lord, reveal my heart. Reveal where my thinking doesn't line up so that I can put off the root sins that are leading to these fruit sins. Uh, Early in this journey of discipleship, Labor Day weekend, we did a message on idolatry. If this is something you want to go back and wrestle with, you might want to listen to that, but also under our Hope Resource page on the website, if you look on resources, we have resources about idolatry as well. But that will help us with that intelligent repentance. One more question we need to answer. Do I need to confess my sins to other people? And if so, why and when? I think the principle we should go on is our confession should be as wide as the sin. Who knows of the sin and who's been hurt by the sin? And I, would, I think the scripture says if we sin the heart only, in other words, it's a thought. I haven't acted on it. I haven't spoken anything as a result of it. I haven't been unloving or unkind to someone else. Then that is what I would confess to the Lord. But if I have sinned, I also should sin against, I'm sorry, confess to anyone I've sinned against. I should confess to those I've sinned against. Matthew, Jesus in Matthew says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Jesus is saying our reconciliation is so important that it needs to be done before you come to worship. And so that's a challenge right there. If you know you've sinned against someone and you haven't gone and confessed it and asked forgiveness, maybe you should do it before you come back next week. In fact, you should do it before you come back next week. And I know sometimes people ask this, sins of adultery and pornography against your spouse need to be confessed, even if they don't know it, because you are one flesh, one body, and it has harmed that one flesh relationship. Now, I want to say this, that can be hard. And so I didn't say this Thursday night, so if you meet someone from Thursday night, share this with them. It may be wise to have a spiritually mature person be with you when you confess that not only to help you, but to also give grace to the one who hears it, to help them process it in a way so that they can respond in a biblical manner.
but we need to confess sin to others that we've sinned against. We should also confess to those who've witnessed our sin. Our job is to glorify God, to give a right opinion of Jesus to others. So if people know I'm claiming Christ and I sin, I need to, because I've misrepresented Jesus, I need to confess that. If I'm in family group and we're having a discussion and I speak harshly to Lisa, I need to ask God's forgiveness. I need to ask Lisa forgiveness, but I need to ask my family group, please forgive me. That was not Christ-like. I did not represent our Lord properly there. Please forgive me. We have a, a, a historical example in the book of Acts when some, some had been convicted and found out for doing sorcery. Others came and said many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. They were confessing to others, to other believers, their sinful practices. And then finally, we should confess our sin for purposes of accountability. We may have sins that people don't know about and we're having a hard time repenting and putting them off. If you look at James chapter five, this is in the context of praying for the sick, but it says, anyone among you sick, then you must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So we taught, when we, we recently went through the book of James and we said, not everyone who is sick is because of their sin, but if your sickness was a result of sin, if you confessed it, God said you would be healed. So there is an idea of confessing sin for the purpose of accountability. So if you're struggling and you're like, you know, Maybe it is only thought sins, but it's one you're having a hard time putting off. Tell a brother or sister, I need to confess I struggle in this area. Will you help hold me accountable? Will you bring to mind scripture? Will you remind me on a regular basis of the truth of the word? Will you be praying for me? Right? So we need to confess, and when we do, we will have greater fellowship, greater joy. We can be rest in our assurance of our salvation and then we can also know we are cleansed and forgiven. So the band's gonna come forward and we need to remember that our ability to experience all of that is based upon the finished work of Christ. Jesus paid it all. So I wanna lead us in prayer and just as you do, I want you to think through, is there sin that I need to confess? Is it a new spiritual habit that I need to develop? And do I need to go to someone and ask forgiveness? Father, we thank you for the gift of this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that through the finished work of Christ, we are adopted. We are part of a greater family, Lord, where we can have fellowship and joy. But Lord, we know that unconfessed sin hinders that. So Lord, would the spirit work in us all to remind us, to prompt us, are there sins we need to confess to you? Are there sins we need to confess to someone, Lord, that we've sinned against, but in our pride, perhaps we've been slow to do so or we're fearful of consequences. We fear man more than you, Lord. Do we need to reach out and ask someone, will you please hold me accountable as I seek to walk in righteousness, to walk in the light? 
You are a good God, Lord, and you promise that this, all these things would be true, that we can have this joy and fellowship and cleansing and forgiveness because we are already forgiven. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So let's stand, continue our fellowship and our joy by praising the Christ who paid it all.
man, Jesus paid it all, and he gave us the opportunity to confess. It might be strange to think that it's an opportunity, but it truly is an opportunity to lay it all out on the, at the feet of Jesus on the cross. We thank you for paying it all. We don't want you to leave today and not take an opportunity to pray. If you need something prayed over, whatever the case may be, it's a praise or request, whatever it is, please go talk to someone just outside the back of uh, north and to your left outside of south. God bless you guys. Have a great rest of your day.